So, Lord, we ask you to come mightily upon this time. I ask you, Lord, that your precious Holy Spirit just fill and brood over everyone, all those that are going to be listening. Lord, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us to um, get captivated, to give you our best our best ear tonight, to tune our hearts and minds into you. Lord, anoint our eyes and ears. Give us eyes and ears of the Spirit. Jesus said, those that have eyes to see and ears to hear, help us to have that, Lord. Good, fertile soil, and that your Holy Spirit will really lock us in and, and come speak through me and let the words of the Lord go out as living seeds of truth that will go into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit of God. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Or let there be a washing of the water. Let there be like a sword that penetrates and cuts through and breaks off and drives out any strongholds, anything that's not of Christ, anything that's not the truth. Just break through that like a hammer. And let your light shine and dispel all that darkness, all that deception, and bring truth. And also the washing of the water of the word of God. Lord, we bless you. We commit this time to you. Let everything be accomplished. Your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to talk tonight, part 13, about Hanukkah. But before I get into that, let me just, this is going to be kind of a mixture of last week's sermon. I'm going to kind of do a part two. And uh, then I'll get into Hanukkah and do a little bit there. All right, so a couple things, just a recap. So Pentecost, Shavuot, remember last week, Israel went to Sinai where they received the word of God. The mountain shook. God came down on the mountain. God's voice was like a shofar. There was, there was fire and smoke. It was a real radical thing. I mean, it was just this shaking. And the people were afraid. But God gave them the word. So that's where the word of God came. And then about 1,500 years later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and God gave the Spirit of God to the church. So both the word of God and the Spirit of God have been given to us today, but that came at Pentecost. And there's two loaves. Now, it's interesting because during Passover, we have to have unleavened bread, remember? So 50 days later, they start what's called counting the Omer, the day after Pentecost, or day after Passover, I'm sorry. They begin counting the Omer. It's, it's a sheaf that would be waved at the temple. They're counting that all the way up 50 to Pentecost, and then the priest had to take two loaves that had leaven in them. They had to have leaven in them. And he would wave them before the Lord. And the waving would be going up like this. It's a heave offering. And then side to side a wave offering, which forms the sign of a cross. And I believe the two loaves speak of both. From now on, what God is saying um, at Pentecost, the birth of the church. From now on, both Jew and Gentile are both going to be seen with leaven in them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory, and that they're going to have to come to the cross to be saved. And so that was what was going on there. And then the book of Ruth is read every uh, Shavuot, every Pentecost. And it's interesting because the book of Ruth is about the harvest time. And Pentecost is about the harvest. The reason the Spirit of God comes, yes, to empower and refresh us, and we need Him, we need His guidance in his leading, but the Spirit of God comes upon us to clothe us, Jesus said, Acts 1-8, to be my witnesses. So the reason the Holy Spirit comes is for the harvest. But anyway, in the book of Ruth, I'm going to say this real quick and move off of it, but those that are following this series, the book of Ruth, Ruth is, is a Moabite Gentile, but she remains faithful to Naomi, an Israelite woman. And the Israelite woman helps Ruth find favor with Boaz, who represents Jesus. And then, in turn, Ruth turns around and, and is really loving and takes care of Naomi. And so, the, the, the way to, to show the um, prophetic symbolism in this is this, that our Hebrew roots of the faith is like Naomi. They help us learn how to please the king, Jesus. And then, as that happens, the Gentile church we found favor with the king and we learned how to please him and all that, then we need to turn around and be loving and favorable, favorable toward Israel and bless them. Does that make sense? I can't dwell on it, but that's kind of the book of Ruth prophetically. All right, so let me jump into this. Last week I said in Matthew thirteen thirty three, 
Another parable he spake to them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Remember, leaven is never a good thing. Leaven speaks of sin. He said, it's, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And I talked about how, and I've got to move quickly because I cannot dwell on stuff I preached on last week. Okay, I'm just recapping real quick. Remember, there's three different loaves full of leaven. The first loaf is probably speaking of the Catholic Church, which started around 300 A.D. and was not ever true biblical Christianity. It was something, um, which I explained last week, Constantine saw a cross, and he was still overseeing the sacrifices in the pagan temples, but also declared himself to be the leader of the church and put his cronies in charge. And it was something that was very perverse it was nothing about no, there was nothing about it like an apostle prophet evangelist pastor teacher nothing like that and the true church of that time were smaller in number they had just come out of great persecution from nero to diocletian they they probably knew people that were martyred in rome and they're seeing this guy this roman emperor act like this he's going to pagan temples worshiping other gods and he, you know, he's saying that he had some kind of vision, and so therefore now he's the head of the church. And he's putting his people in charge, and he begins to try to take over. And they were very, very much against it and said, that's not true Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. That's worldly. It's pagan. It's not of God. So um, Constantine and his leaders began to really persecute those people and would burn their churches, imprison their leaders, burn any literature, anything like that. So that's how the Catholic Church started, but it, from its inception, it was full of leaven. So that's the first loaf. Later on, history records that you guys are familiar with the Crusades. So here comes the Islamic invaders, and they attack Constantinople. And this was like the eastern branch of the Roman Catholic Church. And there was a war there, to make a very long story very short, um, they ended up splitting off of the Catholic Church and became what we know today as the Greek Orthodox Church. And you see them, like, for example, in Russia, and you see these people, they look Catholic, but they're not at all. And it's the Greek Orthodox Church, and that is like the second loaf, that they're very big in Eastern Europe and over into Russia in those areas. All right. Then you had, in 1517, you had Martin Luther that split off the Catholic Church and he started the Protestant Reformation. He got this little bitty revelation that we're saved by faith. Praise God for that revelation because up until that time, the Catholic Church was forcing people to buy indulgences. Uh, they felt, people felt that they were saved because, you know, the Catholic Church said they were saved. And they had to be saved through the Catholic Church. And so Martin Luther had a major problem with that. And, of course, he took his 95 Thesis, he nailed it on the door in Wittenberg, and he basically said, salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, not through any man, not through any church. And he started the Protestant Reformation. But the problem with that is, is that even though that split off and that was awesome, that God gave us that, still there was a lot of leaven. Um, Martin Luther, if you, you can Google this and just type in, Martin Luther, his views on the Jewish people, um, he was very anti-Semitic. He would have been extremely opposed to the things that I'm preaching about, the Hebrew roots. Um, he, I don't know if the word hatred would be too strong, but he very much disliked the Jewish people. And then you also have people like Calvin. And, you know, they had some things that were good, but there was a lot of leaven. I mean, while Calvin is teaching what he's teaching, people that disagree with him... He was having one guy burned alive at the stake with fresh wood, so it would take a long time just because the guy disagreed with him. So even though we had the Protestant Reformation, there was still a lot of leaven in the leadership. And still to this day, now I want you guys to please look this way and please hear what I'm saying because I don't want to be misunderstood. Still to this day, we have all these denominations and I'm, I love everybody. I'm, I'm not against denominations. I actually think that they're probably necessary to some degree, and they probably serve some kind of purpose to some degree. But we all know that they're unbiblical. And we also all know that there is a lot of leaven that is in denominations. You have all these politics. You have um, all kinds of man control. 
You have all kinds of pet doctrines. And there's just a lot of leaven that has worked through the dough. And so you've got Jesus basically, in my opinion, was prophesying in Matthew 13, 33, that there would kind of be these three lumps of dough, but all of them would have leaven in it. And we see that. But yet at the same time, we can be without leaven. But the only way that we're going to be without leaven is that we go back to the scriptures and we're really going to study to find out what a biblical New Testament church looks like and what it's supposed to be. You have to go back to the word. You're going to have to be willing to renew your mind. You're going to have to be willing to shake off some things maybe that you've been taught that wasn't right. You're going to have to be willing to really go all the way with Jesus. And let me tell you that what I tried to make this point last week, but I felt like I was losing some people, so I kind of just shut down the sermon. But what I was trying to say was this. When the Catholic Church came to power, they were the institutionalized church that the world was okay with. Religion was okay with it. The only people that weren't really okay with it were the actual true Christians who were small in number, who were kind of underground, and were persecuted by the institutionalized church. That same pattern down the road, in the days of Wesley, you had the Anglican church. The Anglican church, the world was fine with them. Religion's fine with them. The only people that weren't fine with them were the true Christians who were smaller in number. By the way, our pilgrim founding fathers in 1605 was actually a group of Christian missionaries, the church, that came over here to escape the Anglican persecution. See, the Anglican church was persecuting them. Why? Because they were saying, we want biblical Christianity. And John Wesley, once he had an encounter with God, the Anglican church didn't understand him, and they're like, you're not going to preach in our pulpits. So he had to go to the streets. My point is, there's always been this institutionalized church that the world is pretty comfortable with them overall. They may get on the world's nerves a little bit, but there's not any type of radical persecution from the world. They seem to be comfortable there. They're, um, they're very comfortable with religion. The only groups that are not comfortable with them are those that are like, no, we want biblical, true Christianity. We're going to go back to the Bible and we want to see the book of Acts today. And there you're going to find a clash. It's all through history. And let me say this too. During Azusa Street, as God began to pour out His Spirit in these latter days, He began to restore back what Satan stole from the church. So through the Dark Ages, man, it was like everything, including the gospel of Jesus Christ, was stolen from the church. It took God sending a reformation just to bring back the gospel. Think about that for a minute. That's how far gone the church was. That's how dark things were. That it took God sending a revival through Martin Luther in 1517 to just give us back the gospel of Jesus Christ. So from that time, God through revival has been restoring back what Satan stole from the church. And one of the things that took place around 1905 was that there was a, there was a precious African-American man by the name of William Seymour. He lost one of his eyes in polio. And he was the son of a slave. And he, he was so hungry for God. And he would go sit outside, because back then there was segregation, but he would sit outside in the hallway and listen to, to Bible lessons being taught so he could learn the Bible. But he sat under Charles Parham, and he was familiar with that revival in Topeka, Kansas, where God began to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues. And this was relatively new to the body of Christ because during the Dark Ages it was stolen is this all making sense tonight? And so God, through revival, sent it back, and he sent an amazing, historic, world-changing revival to Bonnie Bray Street, to this, this precious one-eyed black man going after God with all of his heart, and around a dozen African-American people that gathered with him on Bonnie Bray Street, and they prayed, and they sought God together. And as they did, God sent a great revival that shook the world. People came literally from all over the world during a time back whenever it was difficult to travel like that to receive from God. 
But here's what happened. When revival came to Azusa Street, you would think that everybody would appreciate what God's doing. But the people of Azusa Street were being persecuted by everybody that was in the institutionalized religious church of that time. They began to treat them like they were a bunch of weirdos. They called them, that's where the term holy roller comes from. They mocked and made fun of them. Um, walking down the street, they'd hear people laughing and making fun of them. And they, they had a hard time getting jobs. They were persecuted. My point is, and I hope that I can drive this home, from the time that Jesus left the earth all the way through history till now, there's always been this institutionalized church, but there's always been a real remnant that was hungry for God, that was sincere, that wanted biblical Christianity, but they were persecuted by the religious. So if you, some of you in here, I believe that you want true biblical Christianity, but if you say that you do, then you have to be willing to be persecuted for it just like everybody else has been. Do you think that every other generation that was persecuted for it, do you think that we're better than them and we're going to get out of that? I don't think so. The religious world... By and large, not bashing denominations, I don't mean it that way, but by and large, different denominational groups and institutionalized church, the church world that is comfortable with religion and the world, they're going to be the ones that persecute those, that go after God with all their heart. They always have and they always will. All right, so now let me kind of bring this into Hanukkah. All right, so John 10.22, at that time... Uh, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, which is Hanukkah. Okay? It was winter, and Jesus was walking through the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus was there keeping Hanukkah. He was going to the temple, looking at the lights and all that. All right. But here's the first lesson about Hanukkah, which I believe applies to us. All right, so in line with what I was talking about, during the time that Hanukkah, that all this story played out, okay, the Greek culture was very strong. And so the Jewish culture, there was a group of people that were very sincere that lived in Israel. And these people, they knew Hebrew, and they, they were really living out the biblical um, you know, the biblical narrative that God gave them to live out at that time. I mean, they, they, they wore the tallit, they, they um, you know, studied the, the Bible at that time, the Torah and other, other scrolls. They went to church, they went to synagogue. They were doing their best to live out the godly life God wanted them to. And this was, you know, a couple hundred years before Jesus came. And what you have to understand is that the Greek culture was really beginning to push upon everybody that they needed to become little Greeks. And so a lot of Jewish people were beginning to compromise. All of a sudden now, they're no longer wearing any garments that would be Jewish or a Toledo or anything. Now they look like little Greeks. And now they're, they're not going to church like they used to. They're not doing the things. They're not keeping Sabbath. They're not doing the things that they used to do. A lot of them were becoming more and more worldly. They were becoming more and more like the Greek culture, which is what the Greeks wanted. And there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes that was a ruler of that time that really hated the Jewish traditions and he wanted them all to become Greek. So he began to force the issue. And what you have to understand is, is that the people, and this is going to start really hitting home here in America now, the people that were compromising with the world were getting more and more educated with the Greek culture. They were looking more Greek. They were talking the Greek language and they were studying in the Greek schools. And so the world accepted them as being very brilliant people and successful people and all that, while the people that um, were still serving God with all their heart, they would have been viewed as backward, hillbilly, uneducated. You see what I'm saying? And they, they were shunned. They were kind of looked down on. And Antiochus Epiphanes really hated uh, the Jewish people as far as their culture. He wanted every single one of them 
to stop participating in anything that had to do with what God gave them. And so he began to pass laws that you could not go to church, you could not, could not go to synagogue, you could not read the Torah, you could not keep the Sabbath, you could not eat kosher, you could not circumcise your children, anything. You could not wear a tallit. He began to really push that issue. So the people that really loved God with all their heart and were faithful that were in Israel said, you know, regardless of what he says, we're still going to do what we're supposed to do. So he begins to gather together now a military campaign to come against them. So he gets his army together. They, they go in there and he takes a pig and sacrifices a pig on the altar to defile it on purpose. He boiled the pig and got some of its broth and poured it over things like the Torah scrolls, other things there. And he wanted to defile the temple, and he did that as a sacrifice to Jupiter, or Zeus, their god. And he began to release this military campaign against. Now you understand, these in the eyes of the world were the minority, these were the persecuted ones, these were the ones people thought were a bunch of weirdos, they were uneducated little hillbillies. We're easily going to go in and massacre these people, right? Well, there was a priestly in the line of the Levitical line. Okay, the, the, There was a priestly warrior by the name of Metahias um, Maccabee. And he really believed that God would help him out. Okay, And so he got together his little group. Now, you have to understand, these are ragtag. These are not military-trained special forces people here. Okay, <laughs> These are a bunch of ragtag guys that... You know, I don't even know how they came up with swords, to be honest with you. But they got together this little army, and they began to go, they began to pray, obviously, but they began to go against that Syrian Greek army. And you know what? God pushed back the Syrians. He gave them a supernatural victory. There was no way in the natural that that was in the realm of possibility. But God fought for them. In the book of Daniel prophesied there would be a time that it says little help. I believe that that was, a lot of people do, it was referring to the Maccabees. So Metahias, he, he did that later on. His son uh, Yehuda uh, Maccabee followed in his footsteps. But anyway, they pushed back that army. So once God gave them a supernatural victory, now they had to come back and deal with the problems at hand. Number one, they had to reconsecrate the temple because it had been majorly defiled. So they go in there to start consecrating and cleansing the temple. They're working on it. And while they do that, they, they're supposed to keep the menorah lit 24-7. And so they see that there's only one bottle of oil, and they know that's only going to last for a day. So they're really grieved at the whole situation. And just to make matters worse, now we can't even keep the, the menorah lit for more than a day, and it's going to take us a week or at least to get this place cleaned up and, a, and to get more oil in here because the oil had to be made a special way for the temple. But, you know, anyway, they take the oil, they put it into the, the manure, they light it, and they go on about their business. They're cleansing the temple. The next day comes, the, the fire is still burning. The next day comes, the fire is still burning. It was supernatural. So for eight days, the fire burned in that manure. It was supernatural. And so to this day, there's eight candles that are lit to remember how God did this. So let me give you some things. First off, Do you guys really want to be those that want to be a part of God's remnant? Do you really want to be those that want true biblical book of Acts Christianity? Or do you want to fit into everything else that is comfortable with the world, is comfortable with religion and society? Or do you want to really have true Christianity? Because if you want true Christianity, history shows that there's a level of persecution. And that a lot of times people will look down their nose that at you, real prideful down at you. But God's true people down through history have always been the minority. They've always been misunderstood. They've always been persecuted. They've been ridiculed. God's remnant are those that are not of this world. They don't fit into the religious molds and the pet doctrines of this present age. So, 
So I look at I look at it like this. You know, there's there's different people that may be getting more and more worldly or whatever. That's their choice. But you know, I want to be a holy vessel. The things I used to do, I don't do anymore. I don't know if anybody's ever preached and told you this, but we're supposed to be different. You know, with the world out there, if somebody, and I say this with love, but if somebody goes to work and they work with a bunch of heathens and they say I'm a Christian, but they're just like them, there's something very wrong there. Um, we're supposed to be radically different. You know, I don't any longer um, put the, any drugs or any alcohol or any tobacco or anything in this temple because now this temple's the Holy Spirit's temple. You know, and there's things that I used to do that I'm just not going to do anymore. And just like in the Hanukkah, those guys said, you know, it doesn't matter if everybody else is going to decide to become little Greeks and give everything up and become worldly and pagan and they're going to start worshiping Zeus or whatever. We're not doing it. We're going to be God's holy people, set apart different. They may look at us like a bunch of backward hillbillies. We're uneducated weirdos, you know, misunderstood. But he said we still love God and we're still going to serve God with all of our heart. So that's the first lesson out of Hanukkah is being willing to be different. You know, being different means persecution. And let me just read over some of this stuff, and I'm going to come back to this here in a moment. But there's a religious spirit that wants to debate and argue about everything. You guys ever seen that? 2 Timothy 2.14, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to quarrel about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So this arguing and debating stuff, I just don't mess with it anymore. Let people fight amongst themselves. And another thing, and I'm going to dovetail from last week into this, but you remember me saying that the church by and large, I'm going to start moving pretty quick now, so I want you all to really follow me. But the church by and large, they, there's a lack of the, them making it a house of prayer, so there's, there's a lack of the presence and power of, of the Holy Spirit in a lot of places actually see change. And so because of the lack of the power of the Spirit in, in people's midst, they're not convicted of sin like they should be. And they don't have the power in their midst to help people overcome the sin. And so what do they do? They make doctrines that is comfortable with sin. Instead of saying, we're, we're down here, we need to pray and get up here, <laughs> they dumb everything down to that place. And they make doctrines that go along with an absence of the Holy Spirit. So instead of reading the Bible and saying, hey, look, the church is supposed to be spirit-filled and powerful, and we're not, instead of saying, God, forgive us, help us to get there, they make doctrines that say, well, the Holy Spirit was for 2,000 years ago, but not today. The gifts were for, were for back then, but not today. They're making doctrines to fit their present deception. And here's another thing. I'm going to move quickly. Speaking against the Holy Spirit. Let's read this. I want everybody to read this because I don't want people to leave out here saying, well, this is Pastor Scott's opinion. It's in my opinion. I'm just reading you what it says. So Matthew 12, 32. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw and the crowds were amazed. That's what we need to see. The power of God coming in, the demonized delivered. Amen? This man cannot cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, the institutionalized church, the church, the religious crowd, those that are comfortable with the world, the world's comfortable with them, when they saw this radical guy doing this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So they were saying that Jesus was demon-possessed sorcerer. Anybody seeing this? Okay. They're calling him a witch doctor, a shaman. Verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided itself cannot stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If by Beelzebub I cast out demons, by who do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by what? The Spirit of God. Then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he binds the strong man? He then will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now read this with me. Everybody, here we go. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. I'm going to wait for everybody to get there because I want everybody to see this. Okay, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For uh, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And one translation says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. But I want to go back to that. Any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven, but the blasphemy of the Spirit, which Jesus explains. Don't speak against the Holy Spirit. It's uncomplicated. But see, here's the thing. There's whole mainline churches and, and groups out there, even denominations, that speak against the Holy Spirit all the time. Now, I'm not saying that they crossed the line. I don't know where the line's crossed, okay? But there's a line there. Jesus said it. There's a line that you can cross, and you're not going to be forgiven. I don't know where that line is. But there's, there's groups out there that all the time are speaking against the things of the Spirit. Tongues is of the devil. That stuff is a bunch of demonic stuff. They'll speak against revivals. They speak against the moves of God. It's all a bunch of demonic garbage. And they don't realize what they're doing. And there's even a lot of churches and denominations out there that have doctrines and they really teach, they have Sunday school classes to teach against the Holy Spirit. And so because this is so clearly there, and you can't really get around that, and they keep speaking against the Holy Spirit, so now they've got to figure out, how am I going to fix this problem? So here's what they do. They create doctrines that, that um, help them to be able to continue to do this. Let me show you what I mean. I watched a guy one time do this, and I was just shaking my head. He, he was teaching that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is actually just rejecting Christ as your Savior. Now, I think that that's actually pretty common taught. It's crazy, but anyway. So he takes this scripture out of context and twists it to this scripture out of context, twists this. And by the time he gets through this whole big line of thing, somehow he brought the whole thing around to where actually the blasphemy of the Spirit is just not accepting Christ as your Savior. And they teach that because they're the ones that are constantly speaking against the Holy Spirit. The whole point is, let's not make doctrines in deception. And, and if people are doing something the Bible's against, don't make a doctrine to where now they feel comfortable doing that. But instead, why not teach people the truth? To quit speaking against the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we go and we, don't, we see something, we don't fully understand it, we don't fully understand what's going on, instead of automatically being really prideful and judgmental and start speaking against what's going on, why don't we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand, but just show me, and let's be childlike and humble before God. But the religious, it's a lot of pride, it's a lot of leaven that's in them, and it's in their churches, and it's in their denominations, and, and it's, it's an enemy, it's resisting and fighting against the Holy Spirit of God. So for us to become God's elect, the reason why I talked last week so strongly, and I, I preach so strongly and passionately about when Paul said, examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The reason why I'm saying these things is because of this right here. Matthew 24, 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You know why the elect won't be deceived? Because God will keep them. But you better be one of the elect. You better not just be sitting your hiney in a pew somewhere saying you're the elect and just deceiving yourself when you're not. But you better actually be that. So somebody will get up and preach and say, listen, examine yourself. Make sure that you are who you say you are. Don't be in deception. If there's sin in your life, get the sin out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fall at the feet of Jesus. Get things right with him. Become his elect ones. Because his elect won't be deceived. They'll be protected. And some people debate about different things. Well, maybe those that are like they are, maybe they were never 
saved in the first place. That could be true sometimes. Maybe they abandoned the faith. Maybe they once were with God. Now they've just rejected. That may be true sometimes. Or some say, well, maybe they're just backslid. They're still Christians. They're just not living right. That may be true sometimes. But I'm not going to debate and argue about all this nonsense. What I see is people that are not right right now, and I'm concerned for their soul. I don't want them to enter eternity with any doubt where they're going to end up. John wrote and he said, I have written these things so that you might know you have eternal life. I don't live tomorrow thinking if I die tomorrow, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I know where I'm going to go because I know that I'm right because I've examined myself. The leaven of the Pharisees has worked its way through much of the church world, creating doctrines that keep people in all kinds of bondage. Bondage to deception, bondage to sin, bondage to sickness, bondage to the devil. I'll never understand. You know, when Jesus died, he took stripes on his back so that we could be healed. He hung on a cross for six hours. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree so that we can be delivered from the devil. So why make doctrines that tell people it's God's will that you still be in bondage to different sins or you're still going to remain sick and you're still going to be in bondage to the devil? But yet people do that all the time. Well, it's God's will for these things. It's not either. This is a work of the devil. And if we'll preach the truth, the the truth will set people free. But you have to preach the truth. And what I've been saying all along, I've said for years, and I'll be saying from years from now, is we better know Jesus for ourselves. We better have a personal relationship with him. We better have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that my sheep know my voice. Listen, if where's God the Father right now? He's in heaven. Okay, where's God the Son? At his right hand. So who's in this room and who's in you? The Holy Spirit. We better get to know the Holy Spirit. Those that know the Spirit of God, as the Bible says, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. So we've got to have a relationship with Jesus. We've got to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you better know the Bible for yourself. And get all that leaven of the Pharisees out of you and know the truth. Because in these last days, deception is going to be thick. But God will keep his elect ones. And if we know the word of God and we know the spirit of God, we're not going to be deceived. So going back to Hanukkah, the first lesson is to be a holy people, to be set apart and different. I want to be different. When I die and stand before the Lord, I don't want to have been a sellout that fit into the institutionalized church of my generation that was full of the leaven of the Pharisees. I never rocked anybody's boat. Nobody ever got mad at me. I fit into religion and the norm and the world was comfortable with me. Forget it. You watch. There's going to continue to be a lot of churches and church people that are going to continue to become more and more apostate. They're going to be accepting the world more and more. They're going to be accepting homosexual marriage more and more. They're going to be accepting uh, things like abortion and many other deceptions. We're living in the time where the, the tares and the wheat have grown up together, but they're being separated. We're living at the time, the Bible says, there'd be a falling away. And that some are abandoning the faith. Why? Because they're giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. If somebody had prayed for them, if somebody had come in a mighty anointing and told them the truth, they could have been saved. That could have penetrated. That could have broke through the darkness. But instead, they've been surrounded by doctrines of demons. The next lesson we learn from Hanukkah is victory in the midst of overwhelming odds where it seems like there's no way you can have victory. God can give you supernatural victories. Listen, D.L. Moody, I believe, said, If God be your partner, make your plans large. Why in the world are churches not praying for their whole city to be saved? Why in the world are some not praying for this nation? Listen, if God is God, he can come down in a city, he can come down in a, in a nation, and he can shake with the power of his spirit and send a great awakening. God can send a victory where it seems like it's impossible. The, fourth, or the third lesson we, we see with Hanukkah is consecration. I've taught enough on this. I'm not going to dwell on it. But God wants us to consecrate our lives unto him as holy. And then the third lesson, or the fourth lesson rather, is supernatural oil. 
In Hanukkah, there was a supernatural amount of oil. The oil remained. And in these last days, the Bible says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And God is moving. He's pouring out his spirit. He's sending extra oil to his church. Great revival. And we need it. But here's, here's some things. In 2 Timothy 4, 3, the Bible says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's where we're at today. Some people out there, I'm not, I'm not saying this to River of Life, I'm just saying this out there, but there's some people out there that say, you don't want the truth. You get irritated when a preacher preaches like this. That leaven in you starts getting flared up. You get mad. Why? Because you don't want the truth. You just want somebody to tell you what your itching ears want to hear. You want to be pacified in your sin. You want to be comfortable where you are. You don't want to be challenged. You want to be left alone. So you'll go to certain churches or turn on certain programs or go to certain places and gather unto yourself people that will only tell you what you want to hear. I don't want to be like that. If Man, I want to hear the truth. If, even if it hurts me, even if it makes me mad, I want to hear the truth. Some people are so full of the leaven of the Pharisees, they're putting everybody into heaven. When Jesus said there's a wide road that leads to destruction, many find it. But there's a narrow road that leads to life and few find it. We better preach it straight. You understand all of us are going to stand before the Lord and give an account. We're all going to stand before him by ourselves and give an account. What type of message were we sending to people? Were we sending a message to them that they were fine in their sin and then they end up in hell and they could have been saved? If we had told them the truth, they could have been saved. You know, I love what David Hogan said about this ridiculous debating and this leaven of the Pharisees that comes in. It's religious. He was saying, only in America. You know, people would sit around and fight and argue and debate. There would be somebody that... that obviously needs deliverance from a demon maybe they're manifesting a demon and you have people just fighting and debating with each other is the demon in him on him around him is the demon surrounding him is is there some kind of a uh, you know it doesn't fit their theology so they sit around debate and david said you know i got an idea for you instead of sitting around debating about it why don't you just kick out the demon Are you seeing where the leaven of the Pharisees comes in? You get all these pet doctrines and all this leaven and people sit around debating and arguing stuff when in fact we just need to be going out telling people the truth, seeing people saved, seeing people healed, seeing people delivered and doing what Jesus did when he walked the earth. And another thing is about the rapture, I say this in passing, but the religious seem to think that just anybody and everybody that goes to church and calls themselves a Christian is going to be a rapture. When Jesus is coming for a bride without spot or blemish that has made herself ready and he's coming with, for wise virgins with extra oil. Go to Matthew 25 if you want to follow along real quick. Now I'm going to read this. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. I want you to notice that all ten were virgins. It's speaking to God's people, not five virgins, five harlots. Who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took oil and flask along with their lamps. They had extra oil. When the bridegroom was delaying, all got drowsy and began to sleep. At midnight there was a shout, Behold! The bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Hey, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No, you go get your own oil. There's not enough for both of us. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, everybody say, Those who were ready. Those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast. Those that had made themselves ready. And the door was shut. Verse 11. Later, the other foolish virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on your alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. I sure hope that that isn't prophetic. 
that Jesus was saying there were ten, but only half of them were ready. I hope that that wasn't prophetic. Because if it is prophetic, that means half are not going to be ready when the Lord comes in that way. Acts 2.17, it will come to pass in the last days, said God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men see visions, your old men dream dreams. I'm starting to move more from visions to dreams, but that's okay. And the outpouring on all flesh is taking place, but we desperately need the spirit of God. So in this sermon, what I'm trying to get at about Hanukkah, number one, God is wanting a remnant people that are making themselves ready for his coming and that really want to live out true biblical Christianity. You're not going to be a sellout. You're not going to be a part of this institutionalized church. You want to really know him. And then, number two, God giving us supernatural victories, seeing revival, seeing breakthroughs that affect cities, that affect tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people's lives. Great victories. Number three, that we be consecrated as a temple, holy and pure. And number four, extra oil. So let me close with this. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Fellowship, leave it's koinonia here. But fellowship is an intimacy with God. An intimacy, knowing the Holy Spirit. If I ask this tonight, and I'm not asking for people to raise their hands, but how many know the Holy Spirit? How many have the fellowship with the Holy Spirit? That's something that we desperately need in our lives to know the Holy Spirit's voice, His leading. When you pray, the one who is with you, His presence, that really you're communing with the most is the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, 18, Paul said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Listen, I'm not ashamed of biblical Christianity. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of tongues. I'm not ashamed of the Holy Spirit. I love the Holy Spirit. I spend every single day of my life, I pray and I spend time with the Holy Spirit. Every day. I don't want to have a time when I don't have some time with Him that day. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I stay in the word of God because I don't want to get caught up with the leaven of the Pharisees. I don't want to get caught up with the spirit of this age and the institutionalized church that is of this generation, but it's not really God. It's just a shell of what it's supposed to be, and it's full of leaven. I don't want to be a part of that leaven. I want to be called out and be different than that. And please listen to what your pastor is telling you. We must know him for ourselves. You're not going to be able to ride anybody's coattail in these end times. You have to know him for yourself. You need to know Jesus. Number two, we need to live the life. If you're playing with sin, trust me, it can destroy your whole life. And if you don't quit it, it could cost you even into eternity. Number three, you better get to know the Holy Spirit. See, what goes on in church in here had to start in my personal prayer life. It could not have come here first. It had to start. God, the Holy Spirit, had to teach me his presence, his voice, his leading in prayer. So that when I come in here, I know him. And I know when he's moving a certain way. I know when he wants me to do, lead a certain song or have Brianna lead a song. I know when he's wanting me to preach a certain sermon. I don't just sit around and think in my mind, well, hey, this would be great to preach on. I don't do that. I ask the Lord, what are you saying to the church? And he tells me. But we have to know the Holy Spirit. We have to know his leading. Get to know him. When you pray, follow Paul's writing right here in the Bible. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You ask the Holy Spirit in your prayer time. Holy Spirit, I don't think I really know you, but I need to know you. I need to know your voice, your leading, your presence. So I'm asking you to help me. The Holy Spirit is the one that will teach you the Bible. He'll help you understand things you never understood before. He'll empower you to overcome sin. And, of course, I've said this multiple times, but I'll say it again in closing. We've got to know the Word of God for ourselves. If you don't know the Bible for yourself, I feel for you in these last days. 
Because a lot of people are going to be deceived by a lot of different things. You do understand that the Bible says that there's a rising false prophet at Antichrist that's coming and the world is being made ready for this. I preached on Spinal Prophecy series, y'all know. But the religion starting to come together. The false prophet spirit. All religions coming together. The only one that won't fit in, guess which one it'll be? True Christianity. Oh, there'll be a Christianity in there. It just will be the institutionalized church. It won't be true Christianity. All of that will blend into this unified one world religion, coexist stuff that you see already. And the Antichrist is going to be a political figure. And you see even now governments beginning to talk more and more about the United Nations, European Union, and they're starting to want to talk about a unified one world government, unified one world currency and military. These things are in the work and it's coming. And I believe that if people will go back to their Hebrew roots, they won't be deceived because the Antichrist is going to be a false Messiah. If you know the true Jesus, you're not going to follow the false Jesus. I'm trying to, trying to make sure people really know him. Not know about him, but know him. And see, if, if we understand our Hebrew roots in, of the faith, there would not be statues that are being built by churches. And why is that significant? Well, because even now, amongst some of these, remember the three batches of dough, among these batches of dough full of leaven, there are statues that are made that people worship and pray to. And some of these statues now have, have gotten such a, a demon in it, and I mean that literally, that it can cry, it can bleed, and people go worshiping that statue, and some invisible power hits them, and, and they're healed or something. It's demonic. It's demonic. False signs and wonders. Why is that playing into the end times? Because there's going to come a time when the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple and he's going to build an idol and that idol can speak. But when you understand your Hebrew roots, you understand we're not supposed to be worshiping and praying to these idols. There would also be a holy fear of God in the church. There wouldn't be this hyper-grace teaching where people feel comfortable in sin, that would not be in the church if they went back to the Hebrew roots. The Hebrew roots, there's a holy fear of God. But because of that hyper-grace stuff, that leaven that's worked through the church, you've got people right and left that are going to be falling away from the faith. There wouldn't be all the denominations and pet doctrines because if people properly understood the Hebrew roots, there would be more of a unity about what we believe. All right, we're going to pray tonight. And what I feel the Holy Spirit saying is that he's wanting an intimacy to start coming in our lives. Some of you maybe haven't been in prayer like you should. I feel the Holy Spirit saying he wants you to start drawing nigh to, to the Lord and he'll draw nigh to you. He's wanting there to be an intimacy, okay? So we're going to pray tonight. I'm going to ask the Lord to begin to really draw people in an intimacy with him like never before.